Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien, featuring this week the journalist, author, former newspaper columnist. And uh, well, there's a description of him I'm going to employ quite early on in the interview, but I won't spoil the surprise by telling you now what it is. I speak of Howard Jacobson, Booker Prize winner and author of some 15 novels, also recently some really trenchant journalism about things like Brexit and Trump. So I'm pretty confident that we'll have plenty to talk about. I'm going to add something right at the beginning to that description, and I'm going to gauge your reaction. I'm going to say public intellectual. Is that a thing? That's all right. Are you? Yes, yes, yes. I should hope so. Yes, public intellectual. A public intellectual. It's quite an un-English... Sounds a tiny bit, something slightly sleazy. I'm doing something in public this is that good. I ought to be doing in private. <laughs> well, that would be the English attitude to intellectuals, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, this is in, good. That's good. <laughs> in many ways. Um, now, the way unfiltered works is there are no rules and, and there, are no, there are no limits. So we'll begin at the beginning, if we may, which is in 1942 during a, a bombing. That far back. Uh, that far back in, in a, during a bombing raid in, in Manchester, Presbury in Cheshire. Ah, is that right? Yep. The nursing home where, yes. my, uh, where my mother laboured with me. What was Hard labour, apparently. Was it? She says. Got big head. Big baby, yeah. I was a big, big baby. So I don't think I'm much, I was much bigger than Prince Louis. Yeah, he's a big lad. I was that kind of size, eight pounds, something or other, you know, I was in there. And what, what sort of family were you born into? Uh, poor working class Jewish family. My father at that point would have been in the war not fighting because he had a heart thing, but okay. he was a sort of... He did things in the army. He, mm. he never left Britain. And um, we lived in... Once, once, once I was born, I was brought home to Salford in a very, very kind of small, poor terrace house, where I like to think, I remember, it, could it be possible, that with, in my first three years, I, I, I saw bombs falling out of the sky. It was very much a bombed area. And I remember a, I had my own little gas mask at that. And a close-knit family. My, my father was away. My mother was supported by her sister, her younger unmarried sister, and her mother. And I was the, and I was the firstborn, and I was the darling of these three women. And it's 
between ourselves been downhill all the way. <laughs> since. Where, where did the Jacobsons, how did they end up in Manchester? How did they end up in Salford? My father was born in, in Manchester. My mm. father's parents weren't. They came over at the beginning of the 20th century from... They're not very good, no. Jewish families, at telling you where they come from because they all wanted to forget. So it was always Russia, now let's forget it. But I've tracked it down. Kamenets Podolsky, I think, which is the Ukraine, was where my dad's lot came from. And my mother's lot came. My mother was also born in Manchester. And her family came from Lithuania. I only discovered that quite late in my life. And I actually went back to find the the little villages, the little shtetls where my great-grandparents had had come from and where they'd they'd met. Why did you want to do that? I was kind of fascinated to discover that I was from Lithuania. I can't tell you why, uh, when I heard it, I was fascinated. It was partly because, well, that's not Russia. Yeah. And I knew a tiny little bit about Lithuania, that the, that the Lithuanians were called Mitnagedim, um, Lithuanian Jews, that is. They were, they were known for saying no. They said no to things. And I, by the time I discovered this, I was a chap that said no to things. I was, I drove my parents mad because I said no. And it was a kind of, it wasn't as the Lithuanian Jews sulked the way I sulked. They said no because they were Jewish rationalists. Right. And they said no to sort of a certain kind of hysterical Judaism that was going on further on in, in Russia. So I like that idea that I belong to this critical mass of Jews that had a very particular attitude, scientific, rational, very, very philosophical attitude to, to being Jewish. And I like to discover that that was part of me. And what what this was also about was, you've asked me to talk about myself, so I am no, obsessively and with intense self-absorption. But I'd always been interested in how I was, how, how I was the, my parents' battleground. Not that they fought very hard, but mm. they had, there was a huge difference between them. My father was immensely outgoing. He was a children's magician. He was an entertainer. He could do somersaults. He was, he was the life and soul of every party. Ukrainian. Yes. You know, straight out of, straight out of, you know, Dostoevsky. And my mother was quiet, reserved. She read books. My father really never read a book in his life, I think. And I was both. I see. And I was sort of, my, my, my heart drove me to my mother's side because I felt I was more like that. I was more comfortable being quiet and reserved, very shy, all very shy on my mother's side. Mm. But I longed to be my dad. So I suppose the natural thing would have been, having done Lithuania, to go back to the Ukraine. But something told me I wouldn't find anything there. Partly because I had no hold on where exactly I think that they said Kamenets Podolsky, but I didn't know where it was. Whereas the people who, the great great aunties who told me Lithuania, could actually name me a couple of villages. So I was actually able to go and stand in the graveyard, what was left of them, yes. and not see any graves um, relating to my family. They'd had the sense to get out before the Nazis came in, because when the Nazis moved through that part of the world, it was vile. They left nothing in their way. It was vile. And the Lithuanians were pretty nasty too. In fact, the Lithuanians shocked the Nazis. They were were so brutal. But it was very interesting to go into those specific villages and um, think about... Yeah, it was a route. It was a roots thing. It was a roots thing. And it was actually, I did it as part of a book which was called Roots Schmutz. Yes. And then I made a television series based on that. So... I mean, this is one of the interesting things about you, isn't it? Is it that you, if I said that you do have the look at me gene, which you inherited from your father, you do, you do enjoy being in the spotlight. Yeah. So the shyness 
mean, th- this is the duality, is it? This is where, where yeah. mum is the introvert, dad is the extrovert, and you somehow oscillate between the yeah, two. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And I am, if I am too extrovert, I go home and I'm ashamed of myself. How do you mean? What sort of things? I kind of, I'll say to my wife, why yeah. did you let me... Why did you let me do that? <laughs> I mean, if this were to turn out really quite horribly. Yes, which it were. And, and, but we just say it were, and yes. I were to say things, and you were to relax me and get under my guard, and I were to say things that I might regret afterwards. I would go home tonight and say to my wife, why did you let me do that? Why did you let me do that program? And she'd say, but you love doing that. You love it. You absolutely love it. And I'd say, yeah, I know I love it, but there's another part of me that might not love it. You, you remind me of something that we're going to move on to later in the program, in the, in the conversation when we talk about Donald Trump and some of the odd things Sorry, happening. man, you've done with Trump? Uh, no, no, not remotely, but you remind me of the importance of having what I rather rudely refer to as a twat alarm, someone in your life who can tell you when you're being a bit of a twat. And Donald Trump clearly doesn't have that. Never had one. Never had one, has he? <laughs> no, so from never, childhood never, onwards. And, and clearly it's a role that your wife happily plays in your life. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's a thankless task, <laughs> I have to tell you. Because <laughs> every night, I mean, I will, every night I will find, every evening I will find something to think I've been a twat about. <laughs> That's the... Um, uh, the, the self-examination of of both the writer, but and, and I, I, let me tell you something, Howard, because g- given the the way that anti-Semitism has moved back into the centre stage in the last year or two in in this country's political landscape, I, I now find myself pausing before saying something that I would have said without pause five years ago, which I, I would have said that is a, a particularly Jewish trait that that sort of Philip Roth style level of self-examination, and and now I wonder whether. That displays a degree of insensitivity on my part. I don't think it does. It no. doesn't, doesn't, it does, certainly doesn't offend me. I think it is. There are such things as Jewish traits. Yes. Certainly, as a, I'm saying that all the time. Yes, I know. And, and, uh, and with my Jewish friends, we will go, well, that was, you know, that was that, that really caught what we like, and that's us, isn't it? And we laugh at ourselves. Jews are very, very good at laughing at themselves. And, and I do think, actually, when, you know, in, in good times, they have a great tolerance for being laughed at, ah, too. Yes. Um, and we expose ourselves to that kind of laughter because it's one way of gathering attention yes and and, and diffusing tension as well i mean it's a it's a it's sort of it's a civilizing thing to do yes indeed. and the, and the jewish joke is one of the greatest of you know, strategies for yeah. doing that for diffusing tension and also for dealing with the kind of the daily depression which is no it's not a daily depression but the depression that you always feel somewhere or other at the end of the line yes. the the upsettingness of things of course People often people will often say to me, "The Jewish 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 sense of humour. Why is it the Jews have got this sense of humour?" And the the answer for me is always it's always the same thing. Jews are funny in the way that they are funny because they know that life isn't funny. Gosh. So Jewish comedy no. is essentially a tragic way of dealing what, with what isn't funny. When did you become aware of Jewish comedy then specifically? <sighs> when did I become aware of being Jewish? Well, that, that I think too. I, I think I think I liked. Yes, I do know when. Uh, I was I'm I'm the shy little boy, mm. age five or six. I've now got a brother who's which is problematic because he's very very pretty, and people keep saying, <laughs> "Isn't he beautiful?" Whereas all they'd ever said about me is, "Isn't he clever?" But nobody had said, "Isn't he beautiful?" When I discovered is that I could make my mother's friends laugh. Mm. These ladies in their thirties and forties who I found very attractive. Yes, of course. And when I could make them laugh, I was filled with a every comedian 
which I'm not. Every comedian will tell you about this, you know, that first excitement that comes when you discover you can make people laugh, particularly people of the other sex, and make them really laugh and see a little bit of, you know, see their throat flush a little and see their head go back. If you can make people show, it's a real, real... Was I aware of of my ability to create erotic charge age five? It's not impossible. Are you sure? It's not impossible. I'm not sure, but all I'm saying is it's, (laughs) it's, it's not impossible. And I I think I knew. I think I knew. I liked then yes. the power of words. I, I could use words and I could shape words that would make. I didn't even know whether it was a joke I was making. I could oh. shape language in a way that would make my mother's girlfriends laugh, and that gave me a sense of sense of power. But not of Jewishness. That's not a. Pe- no, that's no, not, not peculiar to right. Jewish. No, comedy. that's not. Pecu- no, it isn't. You're quite right. It isn't because my, my background is Northern women. Not, I mean, strong northern women. I had very similar experiences to you. And I remember at the coffee table, I would rather trying to make my mum's friends laugh as opposed to going off to play with my mum's friends' children. It was quite an odd yeah. sort of yeah. dynamic. So I get, I get that. So, so the idea of peculiarly Jewish comedy, when did that first dawn upon you, do you think? I think what happens when you discover that you like to make people laugh, you're searching around for what kind, you know, you're watching comedians on television and we did have them in the late 1940s and 50s. Discover that there's a certain kind of joke. There was a certain kind of self-effacingness yes. that I liked. A certain kind of joke against myself. Rather than a cruel, satiric humour against other people, I thought if I could make fun of myself somehow or other, that covered the basis for me. That dealt with wanting to make people laugh and wanting to be out there and wanting to be my dad, mm. but it also dealt with my feeling that I shouldn't really be doing that. Ah. So it enabled me to be, being self-effacingly funny, enabled me to be my father and my mother all at once. I think. And then when I started to meet other Jewish boys, I didn't go to a Jewish school, but there was a kind of gang of us, mm. a gang of Jewish boys at school. We then joked with one another and I became aware that there was something that we did that was not what we did with the other boys that we were friendly with. And that was partly to do with self-effacingness. Yes. Partly to do with also laughing at our group. We loved laughing at the idea that we had this secret thing that we were Jewish. Yes. And we made fun of our parents' thin-skinnedness. Nothing amused us more than to say something was anti-Semitic. We thought that was hilarious. Oh, I see. Is he an anti-Semite? Yeah, yeah. he's an anti-Semite. I had, ter- I had terrible. Tr- my, my dad hit my dad hit me last night. It was very annoying. Antisema? He was an antisema. We kind of we knew that there was an absurdity That's in the world, and in that oversensitivity of the world that we were growing up in. Yes. And yet we were also aware somewhere else of you know how that came about and its necessity. And if any teacher was anti- were genuinely anti-Semitic to us, and a few were. Sure. How would that manifest itself? How would you? I see the Jewish boys are going off for their... Uh, it's a Jewish holiday coming up. Mm. Uh, so, Jacobson, will you be coming back with a tan after, your, after the, you've been mm. in synagogue all day? Or the, the worst one, there was a famous one in, my, in, in our school, a woodwork teacher. And the woodwork teacher had grown exasperated. I didn't want to do woodwork at school. In fact, my, my father was an upholsterer, actually, at that stage. But I didn't want to do woodwork at school. I couldn't do it. And after about four years of doing woodwork, the, the woodwork teacher grew exasperated, <laughs> exasperated with me. 
And at this point, so this is a this is now a Jewish joke against Jews, but also against Gentiles. Right. At this point, all the Gentile boys had been made, were making three piece suites in you know beds and wardrobes, things, or wardrobes, <laughs> and, and lorries were coming round to take them home to the. Pe- and I was still on the first term's pencil box, and I couldn't get the pencil, and I couldn't get the I couldn't get the lid. You know, you had a sliding yes, lid, yes, and the yes, lid wouldn't yes. slide in, and the teacher held it up. To held this up and said, why is it that Jew boys are so gammy-handed? Whoa. So, that's, so I mean, that goes back to your parents, yes. and, you know, and my dad said, gammy-handed, I'm, I'm an upholsterer, and my fr- all my friends, several of my friends had dads who were cabinet makers and uh, things like that. So we all were, all they all were furious and wrote letters to the headmaster, and the woodwork teacher had to apologise. I mean, that was not a terrible thing. It was just... No, of course. But, it, but it's that, that kind of low-level, omnipresent yeah, sense yeah, that, that, yeah, that people yeah, like me need yeah. to have explained to us because yeah. we've never really, uh, even with an Irish surname, it's obviously never, any, never anything comparable or as historical as that. So, they were irksome. Did yeah, other, boys it, at sco- other boys at school would use the word Jew as a verb to mean to cheat. Yes. So they'd go, oh, you just Jewed, you Jewed me. And wow. I always find every time I said to them, look, you can't say that. Yeah. Because what that means is you're you're making the word Jew synonymous with thieving and cheating yeah. and you know me and, and and all others. We're not we're not like we're not yeah. like that, are we? So but they were mainly responsive. I didn't realise. No. But we... they'd grown up in homes where Jew just was a word that they used and it meant to cheat. They didn't make the connection, really. No, and again, with I mean, a lot of the stuff regarding immigration in general, Brexit, Donald Trump, the difference between the faceless description and the... I mean, we've seen it with Windrush, haven't we, in the last couple yeah. of weeks, when people who could probably be persuaded that West Indians don't deserve protection, when they actually think of an individual they know with a name and a history and a personality, the attitude changes immediately. So, see, at my school, people who rolled their own cigarettes, if they put a tiny amount of tobacco in it, I'd forgotten this, this is going back 30 years, but you've just reminded me, they would call it a Jew roll, even, really? even in 1980s, and that was a ca- Catholic monastic school in Yorkshire. Goodness. I didn't smoke, so I, I'm fairly confident I never employed that vocabulary myself, but if I had, it would have been done even... Why a Jew roll? Because there's so little tobacco in it. Ah. See, I still don't even get it. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I presume ah. that was the reason. I, yes. I didn't inquire into the etymology. Oh, so. Isn't I it? was thinking the opposite thing, like well, Jews smell. You do the oh, like a big cigar. fat Havana cigar or something like that. No, so it's so little tobacco. That's very interesting. It's still there, or it was then. I don't know whether whether it would. Have I suspect or... most of this is gone now, but it's taken a long time. Yes, yes, and that's why what 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 is happening with in the Labour Party that you wrote so powerfully about in the Guardian recently is is dispiriting on so many different levels. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, briefly, before we talk a little bit more about school, what do you think drew your mum and dad to each other? From what you've just said, the attraction of opposites would be... I think it was very yeah. much the attraction of opposites. My, my dad was very vitalistic and very charismatic man, and I think lots of women liked him. And I think he loved my mother because she was... I think he loved her bookishness. Yes. And he also loved... It only occurred to me that he must have loved this when he was courting her, when, he, when I was older and made her laugh. He loved the spectacle of my making my mother laugh. Mm. I'd watch him, and he just loved it. He loved to see her break. He loved to see something break, the carapace of quietude and shyness in it. And he must have been able to do that when he was a young... He showered gifts on her. Remember my mother saying that he bought her something, so this would have been in the 30s, in the late 30s, he bought her something no one had ever seen, a cinematograph, they called it, which was a kind of... It wasn't a cine camera, it was a means for showing... 
right. film. Okay, yes. And he'd somehow got hold of one of this and bought it for her, and she thought this was just fantastic. And he was, a, I think, a, a very magnanimous... Never had any money. He never had any money all his life. He never had a clue how to make a penny. But he was nonetheless a magnanimous yes. wooer. And I think he loved the fact that it was a nice sight when he could break through and make a smile and make a laugh. But he also loved the fact that she, that she was so different from him that she read books. He would often say, you're the one with the words. I'd hear them fighting sometimes. And he'd go, yeah, yeah, I'm not fighting anymore. You're the one with the words. Well, when he said that when they were fighting, he said that angrily. Yes. But it clearly beneath all that was a real appreciation that she had something he didn't have, which was word. You know, you know, sons and lovers. Yes. And um, the, the mining father, uh, Paul Morell's father, and the more the more genteel mm. um, woman from another kind of the more churchy woman. To me, when I, when I read Sons and Lovers, oh, that's who they are. This kind of this rougher. Um, he wasn't brutal, my father, but he was uh, rougher-edged yes. and noisy and the life and soul of the party attracted to quietness, delicacy. And it makes delicacy. her laughter more valuable to him because it comes from a slightly rarefied place that he doesn't really understand. Exactly, exactly. That's a wonderful way of putting it. Yes, exactly. So there was a lot of love at home then? Yes, I think there was. I think there was. Yeah, I didn't hear them argue much. He wasn't a drinker, so there was none of that Mr Morell problem no, at course, all. It yes. wasn't. I mean, I seem to have a feeling once that he came back having had a couple of scotches from somewhere and was a little bit noisier than usual and, and the, the whole house was shocked. That you know there was a there was a father in the house behaving slightly differently, <laughs> but in the main, no, he didn't he didn't do that. What they did fight about was money because they never had any. Why was that? Was it was? I mean, he doesn't sound like a profligate man. He just sounds like a a, a man through whom through whose fingers money ran. He couldn't. Yes, he couldn't. He couldn't make any. He he had many many. He had. I told you he was an upholsterer. Yes. Um, and, market trader. And then he was a market trader. But my mother found out where after several years of market trading, my mother kind of took the business in hand and saw that he was kind of selling some things for less than he'd he bought. bought them you know, he, just did the, he did the sums wrong. And he didn't care because it was so terrific. He loved it so much being on the back of the lorry. Lady over here and a lady over there. Let's get them out. Let's throw them out. He'd have thrown it. He'd given it all away if he could just to see the delight in the people of his, uh, uh, of what was called the edge, so the crowd. The, 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 edge. the conflation of customer and audience did for him commercially. <laughs> you meant to know the difference. <laughs> it's important, isn't it? That's why you need a manager. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that, exactly that. And so back to school. Um, actually, before that, did they live to see your success? Because you came to writing and fame rather late in life, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. I was, in, I was 40 when my first book came out. My mother is still alive, by oh, the good. way. She's 95. Good. Um, and still got it all and i give her a new book every time yes. every time my book comes out i give her. but there's, there's a kind of she looks at it now and i can see that she doesn't know whether she feels like reading it no i, guess. I want to read this now i don't know and she is inclined now to say whenever i give her a new book she looks at it she goes i love that first book of yours <laughs> <laughs> I heard the Manchester then, and more, more so in your accent oh, than you? before no, then, no, when, no. You, when you did the That's impression of your mum. And my dad, my dad died 20 years ago, right, um, so but I saw. was already doing all right, yeah. and he was, he was actually proud. He actually said to me in hospital as he, was, as he was very ill in his last few weeks, he said, I'm very proud of him, very touched by this, because we didn't have that. No. You know, we, this was not an age when men hugged one another. I never said, love you, Dad. No. He never said, I love you to me. I don't say that to my mother. You know, we don't do that. It just wasn't, sure. we, it, that wasn't the world that we belong to so for him to say to remember he touched my wrist and for him to say i'm very very proud of you and then he said riley looked at me and he said very jewish your books aren't they 
He said, I'm so surprised about that. I said, I'm, I said you're surprised. I'm surprised. <laughs> he said, there's one thing I want to know. You're not going to be a rabbi. I, <laughs> and I gave him my promise. <laughs> it's quite a career curve, wouldn't it? That would be a, something of, a, of an unexpected turn. So back to school. When did you realise you were clever? I think I knew I was clever with words. Right. That's the only cleverness I possessed. Okay. I didn't know things. I had a very, very good memory. I could, do th- I could solve puzzles. There wasn't Rubik's Cubes then, but there used to be lots of sliding puzzles of sophisticated, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was fantastic at those. Well, that's and not I would words. Show you, you've already no, that's not that's, words. That's, that's, a, that's right. a sort that's, of mechanical facility. You're quite right. I did have that, but otherwise, it was it was words that it was words that I could do, and I kind of wrote stories when I was a little boy, and I wrote a little play when I was about nine for primary school, mm. and I discovered something, something a truth about audiences a sad truth that they're not as sophisticated as you'd hope they'd be because i can still hear myself saying there was a little joke i had it was a takeoff of 20 questions right. um, and i was one of the actors a low voice murmured botticelli and then somebody was going to guess that and another person was going to go pot of jelly which i thought was fantastically great line, clever great uh, but the kids in the audience laughed when i said botticelli <laughs> And I thought, well, that's not a joke. Exactly. The joke's coming. It kind of is, though. Isn't it? It's one of the oldest jokes of all, in a way. It's a, a sort of posterior-based comedy. And so that, that, I mean, even then, it was that, would, you, would the word precocious apply? I sense it probably wouldn't, because you weren't doing it to impress. You were doing it because you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I wrote an essay when I was about nine about newspapers. Oh, yeah. A primary school teacher said, you know, I want you to all write about the uses of newspapers. This is Mrs. Herman. Oh, you've got that. Oh, God. God, I'm telling the same story. <laughs> no, no, you're not. I never mean, worked. It's, it's a, Mrs. Herman, it's an yes. It's important yes. story. God, well, it's funny how it stays in my mind. Yeah. It stays in my mind because um, Mrs. Herman wrote a letter, and the letter my mother my mother kept on her television for many, many years. Oh, now television's a thin screen. Of course, no, can't keep no, anyone no, no, no. <laughs> She kept that for me. And I wrote this essay for Mrs. Herman. And then she said, OK, pen's down, it's break, it's playtime. And I said, Miss, can I stay in to write more of my essays? And all the other kids thought, oh, <laughs> oh what a creep. Uh, so I finished the essay and she was very impressed. And she wrote a note to my mother saying, your, your son Howard has just written one of the most sophisticated. And that was when we all knew Mrs. Herman. And and predicted a future as a writer. Yeah, she did. And I don't know whether you've got <laughs> you've got in your notes that years later, uh, when my first novel came out, my mother got a letter from Mrs. Herman's sister. Gosh, saying my sis- my sister, who was your Howard's teacher, died only last year, and I know she would have been so proud because she used to talk about him. Really? Well, that was amazing. That yeah. was like thirty years had gone by. So I'd stayed in Mrs. Herman's mind. So, you know, she deserves to stay in mine. That's lovely. A teacher can make such a difference. It, it you makes... say that to somebody. Yeah. You, say to, you say to a kid, you're really, really good at this. And, you know, nine times out of ten, the kid will become really good at this. Mm. So I owe something to me. I owe a lot to Mrs. You know, Herman. I did the, the, the last episode but one of this was with a... Um, a rapper and a, and a singer called Plan B, who, who's working in the, in the context of, he goes into a lot of pupil referral units because that's where his education ended up. And his story couldn't be more different from yours. And yet you both revolved around that central point, an individual who made you think you were capable yeah, of doing anything. Yeah. In his case, it was a teacher who didn't meet until he'd been expelled from school and sent to a PRU. In your case, much earlier in life, you, you just... You just got lucky. You just fell into the path of the right woman. Your future, your future hangs on it, and you've no idea at the time how much these things count. 
And how plausible was that when, when you got home, albeit that the letter was resplendent on top of the presumably Bakelite television set? How, how plausible was it that young Howard Jacobson could become a writer when you were reaching 10, 11, 12 years old? It's well, there was part of me that only wanted to do that and believe I could do that. But I still remember lying in my bed and reading the backs of the book. I had, mm. I bought, I had lots of books. I was a precocious reader too. Right. I read a lot and I had, I had books. And I remember reading their names on my bookshelves and thinking, Howard Jacobson is not, it can't happen. It will never happen. I revered writers so much from, from even yes. from that early age, even before I'd become a teenager, really. That I thought to be one, to be one of those, to actually have a book with my name on it. Could such a thing ever be? That seemed to me, you know, forget the business of writing it, yeah. just it's ever happening. And my name on one, and I would read the spines and, and I'd think, Charlotte Bronte, that's, that's, a, that's a writer. Howard Jacobson, no, that's not a writer. So it wasn't a know your place kind of thing. It was a... It was that I just don't fit kind was of that thing. Kind of, yes, it was. It was, And the whole family has always been inco- uncomfortable with the name, very literal about it, now, yes. with the name Jacobs. Really? I hated the name Why? Jacobs. Because it's long and clumsy? Or? It sounds ugly. It sounds really ugly, ugly J's and it's, 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 and it's, it's, it's between two stools, isn't it? Because it, it speaks of... Ukrainian origins, but presumably it wouldn't have been Jacobson as it is now. No, those, the these names were made up when we came. Precisely. Jacobson, the Isaacson, the, yeah. they were made up at customs. Who are you? Yeah. And my poor great-grandpa would go, yeah, I'm so-and-so, Solomon Ben Yakob. And the customs men knew that Ben meant son of, okay, right. son of Jacob, you're Jacobson. Jacobson. So there's no way of going back, you know, and finding the Jacobsons of Kamenets Podolsky. They don't exist. No, of course. The, the, the line isn't there. So when did that change then? Because you, you, you hasn't changed. What? What? When? Did no, it t- believing that you could be a writer clearly changed. Not liking your name hasn't. So, because you sort of what's this? This would sustain you through your twenties, would it? This sense that yeah, I would think it's. T- I want. I I revered it so much. I mean, my name stood for things. It yes, stood yes. for it stood for the ugliness in itself, but maybe for the ugliness I felt in me, or the unsuitability I felt in me, that I was that it, this was a grandiosity that I did not deserve to be a writer, to be right. a published writer and a novelist. Because for me, the novelist is well, I still feel that that's the king of writers. There's writers and. A, yes, a journalist, course. but a novel. A novelist is the when you introduced me. I yes. don't think you use the word novelist. And a little, just a tiny sinking of the heart. Bit, was there? Yes. I apologise. Um, no, no, I'm not. I can deal with it. I can deal with it. But no, that's the word that I want to hear. Yeah. That's the word that I want to hear. Of so the idea. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
that I could be one. I never wanted to be any other kind of writer. No. I never wanted to be. In fact, I wrote an academic book right. with, another, with another guy before my first novel, but I never really believed it. That wasn't the real thing. The, if the novel was ever going to happen, would, would be the real thing. So, could I deserve that? Was I worthy well, of that? Well, yeah, so this is where I'm a little bit confused because you seem to be jumping between something that is a, is a personal sense of perhaps not being qualified or even inadequacy to, to step up to that shelf. But then I'm also then hearing a class-based scepticism about your ability to become a novelist. The, I think the two are very closely connected. Yes. I think it was a, partly a class-based thing. There was no doubt a bit of Jewishness in it. Right. But I think it was class more than anything else. I think it was, you know, being a Manchester boy, working-class Manchester boy. The, the omens didn't feel right. And what you were reading, Amos has a great line, doesn't he, about where the, the subject of drama and novels has gone from being about the gods to being about the kings to being about the ordinary people to then so the stuff you would have been reading then would not have been stuff that you were living so you would have felt that your life experiences wouldn't necessarily lend themselves to novels you're dead right and in fact i've never really caught up i've never been a great reader of what's (laughs) contemporary i mean i'm still a bit stuck in the 19th century there are worse places to be yeah well that's yes well i I think that and there are some people who would think i write 19th century novels but it doesn't bother me either at all you've called yourself because people compare to philip roth you prefer the jane austen comparison yes i yes i can see myself as a jewish jane austen which i thought was a good joke at the time (laughs) still is i read other i must have read big and things like yes, that. Of course. But they weren't stories of... They, but that's also very jolly hockey sticks. Well, it it's, was. It's, you know, it, it has that, that, that tone and that rhythm to yes. it that you didn't hear in Salford. But I kind of knew that it wasn't the Biggles direction I would take. It right. was when I started to read the Brontes and some early Dickens... Um, and I struggle. I'm quite young, really, for reading those things. And, yes. and Adam Bede, some early um, George Eliot. I thought, this is the business. Ah, this is the stuff. The big campuses. But it wasn't my life. No. This wasn't a description of my life. This was, and in fact, this was what slowed me up as a writer, I think, because I was embarrassed at the idea of writing my life. I was still trying to write a 19th century novel, really, with the grand themes of a 19th century novel. And by that time, I'd gone on to Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. So I'm trying to write Crime and Punishment and War and Peace. Um, it's a small ambition. While I'm teaching in Wolverhampton Polytechnic. Briefly, then, did the kitchen sink thing pass you by? I, I'm just trying to place the ages. So, 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 so your John Brain type. It didn't mean much to me. No, I read them. Yeah, I read them. I read them. They weren't important to me. They didn't, have to they say. didn't no. ignite anything no. inside you or no. make you think I could do this. No, I was aware of them. Okay. Um, so you became a teacher then with this bubble, I sense, behind you always, the, the possibility of being a, a novelist, not a writer, a novelist. You never gave up on that. You never felt it's never going to happen. Just a question of if and when. And you went down the road of teaching. Yeah. That was a natural progression through school. Teacher training college, Wolverhampton Poly, or not? School. Cambridge. School, Cambridge, Cambridge. Cambridge, yeah. Cambridge, you, you fell under Levis's yes. spell. I yes. mean, that, that, did you know then what, what an astonishing privilege that was? Yes, I went there to be taught by... Did you really? So, so by this point, by you were a proper A great English critic, a right. great English critic who was, who suited my cast of mind. Yes. Because he was, a, although he wasn't Jewish, he was a bit like the Lithuanian McNagelin. Okay. He said no to things. Yes. He was considered niggard, by others niggardly and austere and puritanical. I, didn't, I don't think it's any of those things. No. I don't think that's right. But he was 
precise and picky and he felt there was a difference between what was great writing and what wasn't great writing yes. and I loved that I really loved that and and went there because I'd been introduced to it by a good teacher again another good teacher helped good teacher helped me in in the sixth form at school and he says you're going to Downing my lad Downing College Cambridge where you will be taught by F.R. Leavis and that happened it wasn't good for me because that we Downing boys were a kind of we were all grammar school right uh, we were all semi-working class really okay. and we all felt slightly out of it because Cambridge. it was an incredibly patrician atmosphere yes. even more so than yes yes i'm ashamed of what a bad job i made of cambridge really i just didn't enjoy myself i didn't have a good time at cambridge that's not levis's fault no but what i did was i allowed my shyness to return at cambridge i thought it's too difficult this they all what i felt when well, the minute i got to cambridge was they all knew one another okay they all knew one another mm. they'd all met somewhere else mm. there was some club some English club that yes. these people had all been going to. And they look for the little points of reference and then they say, oh, well, you must know yep. Johnny or you yep. must know. Yep. And I knew no one. No, of course. It's not true. I knew one, but I didn't yeah, have this. I, I didn't feel mean. I had there was a web of contacts there. Yes. So I felt I'm out of this. And your otherness, sense of otherness kicked in as well? It did not? indeed. Right. It did indeed. I think it was more my, I think it was more being working class English than being Jewish. Yes. But who could, a combination of both. It's a powerful combination. And being part of a sort of elect, elite, self-elected kind of group that were very, very particular about the literature that we liked and didn't made me, gave a kind of veneer of respectability to, to my shyness, something that I didn't deserve. What, I'm, what I was doing, being yes. quiet in Cambridge and achieving absolutely nothing in Cambridge, was an act of the mind, right. wasn't. It was a failure of character uh, to make something happen, really. And that was the excuse you made to yourself yes, at the that's time. Exactly, it took yes, took you years to yes. realise that that's what you'd yeah. done. So the Times journalist Satnam Sangir has written about, because he was from Wolverhampton, working-class Sikh, and the way he talks about Cambridge 20 years ago isn't dissimilar to the oh, way you just talked about oh, now. Interesting. It's an interesting echo. So he would have felt, he too felt yes. this place was not quite for him. Yes, exactly that. One should rise to it. I would never say to any to anybody from, you know, any class or any religion, don't go there because no. it's because it's formidable and will feel closed. I would say just make a good job, you know, breach the wall. It's actually not that difficult. And they're actually nicer and more amenable to you than they think you are. Uh, yes, this is very true. Well, this is a weird question, and uh, don't answer it if it's too silly, but at uh, what sort of age do you think you would have been ready for that experience if you could have sort of lived your life in a different order? At what sort of age do you think you would have got everything out of Cambridge that you should have done? In a couple of years from now. <laughs> I, would, I, went, I went to... Um, I went... When I left Cambridge, I got a very good job, a job I had no right to, really, but because I was a Levis student, yes. and Levis liked me for whatever reason, um, and he had clout in some universities in the world, he was able... The fact that I was a Levis student, then I was able to get a very, very good job in Australia at Sydney University. And the minute I went there... Everything changed. Uh, Everything changed. And I was be able to become my dad. Right. But my dad with a Levis education. Not a bad. So I, so, I, so I sold stuff on the back of a truck. Yes. But I was selling literature. I was selling, you know, I was selling Keats and Wordsworth and on they the were back buying. of a truck. And they bought. Because that's yeah, the threat. They bought. Isn't it? Yeah. Seeing, I, seeing I, the young faces in yeah, front of you light yeah, up as you yeah. bring 
something and, that no one and else. I, and I loved that. And I, as it was happening, I thought, I am now, so I'm 22 when this is happening, I'm now at university. Yes. Okay. I was barely any older than my students. Sure. I'm now at university. I'm, I'm trying to give them a good time and taking seriously what I was doing, but I'm enjoying myself too, and I'm ready for university, ready for university now. But only three years. Well, I decided to come back home for all sorts of reasons that one doesn't have to go into, really. Oh, cool. uh, some personal, some... I decided to come home. This is a long and, way away, isn't yeah, it? It's no getting it's, away from yeah, the geography. It's, it's bloody long way. And in those days, you didn't fly. No, you got a boat. Yeah, Christ. The boats took forever. <laughs> and the coming back was a big mistake because for many years, I couldn't get a job. Right. No, not at all a job. You mean just not a job commensurate with your talents? No, exactly. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I worked for friends of my dad's yeah. in their warehouses and markets. That must have been it. very tough then. I didn't know this. You had this brief flowering and then back to and then back to fallow. nothing. And then back to nothing, really. That's not quite fair to no, say No, I that. understand. It's not fair to actually what happened. Because right. a friend of mine who I'd met in Sydney then, then got a job in Cambridge, a senior job in Cambridge. He was director of studies at one of the colleges there, and he called me in to kind of help teach. Okay. And we would kind of run our own little Levisite oh, university. Cool. At, yes. at so, But it was, there was almost no money in it. It wasn't a lectureship. It wasn't even an official job. I just taught by the hour. Right. And by that time, I was married and had a child. And in order to live, really, I had to do, I had to earn money some other way. So I ran a market stall. So I had a market stall at Cambridge on which I sold leather bags, handbags and things. So the sense was, there I was, and I was doing some teaching back in Cambridge, still not really liking Cambridge very much. But I was also still having to be like the old Mancunian, yes. you know, Hustling, hustling yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. People thought it was some kind of charming, would-be proletarian thing I'm doing, you know. I might be a Levisite, but I'm also, you know, a bag man. Yes. Wasn't, I needed, I needed, the, needed, the, needed money. the money. And I got very, very depressed doing that. Deeply, deeply depressed. Because you felt that. that you were missing? What is the word? You felt that you were... Not in the game. I felt I'd sunk yes, from yes. a high at, at... I felt that when I got to Sydney, every, I'd put all the things that I'd done wrong at Cambridge right, I and see. all my old kind of perturbations and shynesses behind me and I'd arrived in the world. I'm here. Not to wealth and riches, but no. to, I was here in my own skin yes. and confidence. Now that... And suddenly I'd been thrown back again into an older self. Yes. And I was... I think I probably was sank into a deep, dep a real, probably clinical depression at that point. Occasionally I see a photograph of myself at yes. that time. I think, Why the long face? I really looked like that. Yeah. Gosh. Interesting that you distinguish between feeling comfortable in your own skin versus wealth and riches, because nothing that you've said about your early life would have prompted me to use the word ambitious. I think you had dreams... But ambitions in a the sense of a ladder, perhaps I've misunderstood, but you don't you become conscious of ending up on a rung you don't want to be on, but it wasn't there's no plan here. There was no ambitions for, you know, an amazing career. Really. No, or status them, in, in, in an external sense. Or maybe not even that very right. much. No, probably no, there wasn't that. But, but I'd had status at Sydney. Exactly. And once I lost it, yes, I was aware, yes, I, did feel, yes. I did feel that I'd, you know, I'd fallen off that ladder that you got to be, yes. you know. What's the thing in Julius Caesar? Be careful when you go up a ladder, you know, be nice to the people you pass because you'll come down and in the end. Well, I'd come down very, very quickly. How did you get back on it? By going even further down still, there was a lot of messing around. There was personal troubles. There was a divorce. There was an attempt to go back to Australia. But by that time, 
everybody had changed and moved on and the job wasn't there. I ended up coming to going back to Australia, coming back to England again. Let's not fuss around with this. And the only You're job not I comfortable could, talking about this period. No, I just think I just it's just tedious. Okay, no, I'm perfectly yeah. perfectly comfortable. Yeah. I don't want to be tedious about it. So a, a brief period of chaos is what chaos. we're describing. Yeah, and depression and doing everything wrong and yeah. you know and and having relationships with the wrong people and i ended up teaching at wolverhampton polytechnic yes which i am ashamed to say i was ashamed of okay yes i was very ashamed of it uh, in a snobbish way partly yes. a polytechnic yes. moi in your defense the the quality of student going there would be determined by what a levels they'd got so well, that you, was true but so you wouldn't necessarily be working with the finest raw materials no i wasn't working with the finest raw materials but uh, you know so yes i know, I know. so I know. and and the fact that there weren't the finest raw materials will make them you know make them the finest yes. and 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 in truth there were you know there were some students i loved teaching and some did very very well Good. and i enjoyed some of my teaching there but the overriding feeling was i don't want to be in wolverhampton i was lonely there i I was between marriages there. I lived very badly there. I lived in a horrible flat. The job wasn't very well paid. I ate badly as a bachelor. I just ate curries kind of five times a day and felt very, very miserable. And I was there for about five years. And something absurd about the place started to strike me beneath my sense of tragedy. Look what's become of me. And I really was desolate. That's the only word, desolate. A sense of absurdity, particularly when at one point we were told the Polytechnic didn't like the ones, those of us who were teaching literature because right. it didn't really belong to the, what the Polytechnic saw itself as being. Much more vocational environment exactly. than a university. Exactly. For, for, and for, for younger viewers. Exactly. <laughs> Good, that gets it. And the people I was teaching with, were a lot of them were very like me. A lot yes. of them had been to Oxford and Cambridge and wanted to be teaching in Oxford and Cambridge yes. now. Yes. Um, so we all had dreams beyond, you know, realisation in that, in, in that place. So when we were told by the the polytechnic that we were going to be moved into the football ground or that our teaching rooms would be at the football ground and it became a tragic comedy it would the reason we were moved into the football ground was because several years before wolves had made it to europe mm. a lot of money had been <clears throat> given to to wolves to build a new stadium molyneux mm. it was a brand new molyneux stadium wolves fell out of europe fell out of the first division fell out of the second division nobody was turning up what could they do with molyneux put the english department in it <laughs> you're serious you're serious <laughs> serious so i thought it's just for a man who's not feeling <laughs> too clever about things exactly i still see myself going to work going to work in the in the football ground and i thought in the end it's not war and peace i'm going to write it's not anna karenin i'm going to write i'm going to write about this yeah i know about this yeah. the department the, 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 i knew the, the the department backwards everybody else's despondency and things and dreams struck me as funny the fact that, that we were in the football ground struck me as a crowning absurdity so i found myself writing a ca- i'd never wanted to write a campus novel no. but i found myself writing a campus novel and suddenly instead of reading tolstoy and dostoevsky i was reading people like kingsley amis Kingsley-Amis. and malcolm bradbury yes, yes. and david lodge which are great books terrific yes. terrific books and i thought, actually i quite like these oh, and and i'd barely read contemporary literature sure. god look at the contemporary literature they're funny I can they're clever game. i can do this and i can do this i think i can do this right so had you not been writing throughout your 20s and early 30s because we're up to about 1980 by the time you left wolverhampton had you not got several novels on the go or a no, ton, no i never had a novel a trunk full of no them or? no absolutely nothing there's no there was no secret manuscript there's no attempt to publish anything there were my few essays on shakespeare yes. that made it into a little book yes and that was the end of it when i tried to write a novel i sounded 
I, I, I sounded like Henry James trying to write about D.H. Lawrence's life in the metaphysical language of Dostoevsky. And I, after God. three pages, I'd yeah. look at that. <laughs> throw it away. But suddenly this one I thought I could do. Right. I could do this one. I took years to do it. I took about four years to write it, although it's not a, a big novel. And bingo, they liked it. Because this is coming Publish, from behind. Coming from so behind. So it was three or four years to write it. Was that changing you inside as well? Were you now feeling less desolate about the fact that you had this on the go? Did it kind of reignite something inside you, regardless of what reception it got? Or was this a roll of the dice, as it were? I, th- I thought maybe this is... A- I found a new word for myself. Yeah. And I suddenly, suddenly stopped talking about myself as depressed. And I suddenly... Because people would say, so what kind of book is this? And I'd go, it's splenetic. Mm-hmm. I started to use the word splenetic word. a lot, and I thought that's yeah, and, and words to do with bile yeah, yeah, and yeah. things. Yeah. And I thought that's, I'm in that tradition, really, yes. a kind of savage tradition of slightly satirical and, and I'd also been rather prim about. Uh, to, that was to do with my Levisite 19th centuryness. I'm not going to write about sex. I'm not going to write about any of that. So I thought, to hell with it. I am, and I'm going to be funny about it. And I'm going to make this book really, really funny. And I'm going to bring the thing I could do, which was being funny. I could always make a funny speech. I could always make people laugh. But the novel writing that I'd imagined for myself was in another, on another plane. And suddenly I thought, it seemed to me then I put it to myself, well, lower yourself. Right. I would now put it that way. No, I course. don't think lowering yourself into comedy. I think now raise yourself yes, yes, into yes. comedy. But then just relinquishing this higher grandiosity and just to talk about being, you know, this plain, funny, absurdist life. And I could be funny about it. And I loved writing it. And I that, really voice, loved writing. that voice was yours. Yeah. Which you hadn't had before. Yeah. And I could get, and I could find a way to do something with the Jewishness, which I never, ever thought I would write Uh, about because I never thought I was that interested. But as the novel grew and, and I really did learn to write writing this novel. That's how you learn to write. I've never been a believer in MAs in, you know, writing. You you learn to write writing the novel. Malcolm Bradbury would disagree. He would. Yeah, we disagreed on several. <laughs> uh, and you throw stuff away. I mean, I must have written 300 pages of the novel in longhand, I remember, yeah. and threw that away. That's not it. But I still felt I was getting somewhere. Did but something was missing. I thought some crowning thing in the absurdity of this. And the crowning thing was it was a Jew. Mm. It was a Jew here in Wolverhampton, which was... There weren't many Jews in Wolverhampton. No. And most of the people who I taught with drove out of Wolverhampton at night to live in Shropshire. They lived in thatched cottages, which was also not a very Jewy thing no, to do. No. So I felt the alienness of this figure walking through Wolverhampton. And whoever, the person who drew the cover for that book was a guy called Charlie Griffiths, yes. who was a cartoonist. Though he never met me, spotted this. Griffin or Griffiths? Gr- Griffin, you're yeah, quite right. Well the, done. The Daily Express yes, cartoons. you're quite right. right. Yeah. And he just caught that. He caught this figure that was me, though I didn't think I was writing an autobiography, but, you know, <laughs> but it was me striding through this world of absurd figures in a polytechnic town oh. and looking very Jewish. And did you know, before other people read it, that you'd nailed it? I thought I had. Yes. But I, but I didn't have the confidence to believe that other people... So when did you first get that sense of success? I still see myself running out to get the reviews. And I got some terrific reviews to begin with. Really, really a very good review in the gut. And I thought, my God, my God, I've done it. I think I'm there. I was very, very excited. And then nothing happens. Right. This is a strange... Nothing happens. The world was, you know, just the world. The phone didn't ring. 
you know, I'd, I'd, I'd written this novel and a few people had reviewed it and nothing happened. Yeah. It takes ages for anything to happen. So I just thought, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'll have to leave the Polytechnic now. Uh, I have to leave the Polytechnic because I can't, because I'd made fun of the people I was teaching. Oh, so with. Of course, I denied. Of course, I denied. <laughs> Nothing to Nothing, do. No, no real life in here. And started work on another novel again. Yes. Immediately. Yes. Whether I would have worked on the other novel had I known that people were actually liking coming from behind. Yes. I don't know. I don't think I really knew that people were liking coming I from see behind. What, because you can't. It's not like now. Now you could go on Amazon and find 500 reviews of it. Exactly. And you'd get a different sense. Exactly. I'd never thought of it's that instant. before. It's, it's instant. A, it's a less lonely, but also a more fretful business now. Having yes. That. If you can, I've got author yes. friends who... I, I beg them not to go and look at their own reviews well, when they're in the middle of their current You're novel. dead right. Are, you're dead right. That's the worst thing advice. they can do. Yes. So, uh, astonishingly, we've inhaled time and, and we're going to run out. So I'm going to fast forward then through the next 13 or 14 books. Good, good. I, Let's get them out if, of the way. If work. I may. But there's, I mean, they cover an awful lot of ground. You describe yourself, as we've mentioned, as a, as a Jewish Jane Austen. But by the time you won the Booker Prize, the Finkler question was, was a bit of a departure for you in many ways as a book. Yeah, it was... The reason I won the Booker Prize yes. was because it had a touching quality. Yes. I owe it to somebody. I owe that Booker Prize. I've never said this in public. I owe it to, I had an encounter with a man right. called Donald Zeck. Donald Zeck, who was a famous journalist in the yes. 1950s, yes. Uh, who was a show business journalist. That's what I thought, yes, exactly. Little bald guy who I, you I, always I was, saw. I was a show business yeah. journalist. I know. I've well, read then about Donald Zeck. Yeah. Yeah. And, there was, and he wrote biographies of Marilyn That's Monroe right. and yes. Sophia Loren, and there are photographs. And he knew them all, because in those days, you didn't exactly. do it from a distance and through a PR. You lived exactly. in their world. Exactly. He knew them all. And I remember reading that when I was a little boy, thinking, mm, one of my ambitions, mm, well, if, if, if that little bald Jewish guy can, yeah. can be dancing with Sophia who's to say because i did have other ambitions as well as <laughs> as well as literary ones of course and then you know and then i think no more about it and two or three years before i wrote the the, the finkler question i get a call from one of my school friends saying my wife's uncle is donald zeck and i said oh yeah donald zeck yes when did he die it's not died and he's read your books and he loves your books his wife has just died he's absolutely broken hearted he's a man in his 80s he'd been married for 60 years he needs he just needs cheering up and he thought you might cheering up would you meet him for lunch i meet him for lunch he cheers me up he cheers he's now he's now 99 gosh I still meet him for lunch, yes. though I have to take the lunch round to him now. Brilliantly intelligent, funny man. And he starts to tell me the story. And his story is so funny and so heartbreaking at the same time. What it's like to be 88 and to lose your wife. Mm. What it's like when other people decide to introduce you to other women. What it's like to have a first date at 88 with a woman of 30 who says, what's your favourite band? <laughs> and I said, look, can I... Do you mind if I use this? He said, go ahead. In fact, take, you know, and he just almost dictated it. And this, I just use it in, in, in the question. Finkler question. Yeah. And it's very touching, if I say so myself, and I can say so myself, because he virtually wrote it through. Well, and, oh, I was just, I ventriloquized it, really. No, and, and I think that was an element. In fact, you know, when I talked to the judges on the night, yes. I was surprised how many of them didn't say, well, it's a funny, brilliant novel about they how many of them said it's so touching. And he was the figure that was touching in it. Gosh. So he won it, really. Well, you say that. It's not the only thing you were surprised by on the night. I, I remember you getting the interviewer to repeat 
her initial question, didn't she? The BBC interview, because you, you hadn't quite sunk in that you'd actually won at this point. Yeah, well, I played a game with her. I, I, I thought game. there's a bit of theatre, but don't spoil it. No, don't spoil it. I did, I did. I didn't know what she was talking about. Me, me, me. Well, I mean, the one thing that really surprised, I mean, this is true, as I was sitting there and you're waiting to hear the thing and and you hear the judges saying, and you think, hmm, that's sounding, this description of the winner and the winning book, and then there's a little description of it, and I think it sounds like me. A bit like mine. Sounds like, sounds like me. And then they said, and then I heard the word Finkler, and I thought, that's not Jacobson. Some bastard called Finkler has just stolen my prize. I tell you, you know, for a fleeting second, that's what I thought. Right, we've got four minutes to do the state, oh, of, the, God. To do the, state of the world. Um, morning after the election of Donald Trump, you started work on Pussy. Which I couldn't live with it without. My wife said, uh, you will be impossible to live with if you don't write something about this. Yes. I used to write a column for 20 years for The Independent. Of course, I no. no longer have a column because The Independent closed. The word splenetic springs to mind again. Yes. This is where you need to vent your spleen. Yes. And I had no column to doing it, so I just thought I'd write a how, why do you think? How do you think it happened? What happened in America? Why, why has somebody so fundamentally and, and patently absurd ended up in I think we're coming. Charge? I think we're coming to the comeuppance of democracy. Yeah. I think democracy, the Americans have certainly know and anybody who thinks has known that democracy which is you know the only tolerable form of government also has the terrible problems attached to it and the americans have been waiting for this for this problem and i think sped on by social by television and trump is pickled in television and the social media now and the the great thing we have to fear i think now this is a terrible thing to say but i think it other people yeah you can't trust the people it's not that you just can't trust the people to get it right. It's almost you, you can be certain that the people will get it wrong. They'd already, they'd already done it, as far as I was concerned, in Brexit. Sure. Horrendously wrong, yes. as far as I could see. Yes. And then with Trump again, I mean, two such big events as that. And what did they have in common? The people given this new confidence in their own opinions, their inability to distinguish truth from false... Mm. Their their preparedness to believe well, their refusal to distinguish refusal yes false, that's actually. good and I you, think it's that and the technology is relevant to that process oh. because it affords a validity I think it begins personally possibly with the below the line comments on newspaper articles huh. where you'd get fifty thumbs up for something that you'd get thrown out of your local pub for saying so yeah. suddenly you're thinking actually yeah and that gives a validity to things that are patently wrong or obnoxious that that we hadn't do you think as a Jew you you're a canary in the coal mine for stuff like this. <sighs> Could I be? Could I be? Should I be? Why? Because, because the ancient hatreds that you describe as being the first casualties of democracy are often directed first at Jewish people before others follow. Well, you might be right. If we are in an age of conspiracy theories, if that's part of what's being brewed up now by the will of the people, by the people fed by nonsense that they read in places mm. where they don't even know where it's coming from, you know, all this unidentified yes. information. Yes. Yes. So we're in an age of conspiracy theories. And what's anti-Semitism but a conspiracy theory? Yes. It's and a conspiracy theory from beginning to end, built out of fear and ignorance and superstition, as are all conspiracy theories. And, and they flourish in difficult times, whether it's an economic crisis or a refugee crisis, when, when, when rulers need to blame somebody else for bad stuff happening to the people, scapegoats and minorities generally fit the bill perfectly, don't they? And they are easier to scapegoat than ever before. And there are lots of people in the field talking about the part, yes. the role that the social media have played in yes. stirring up trouble. I mean, groups can just now post things on social media and more or less order groups of other people to go out and slaughter it is, it's it's not as, far off that it's, as, it's very close to that. Are we going to be able to end Howard Jacobson on an optimistic note? I, I sense we're not. 
It's not, I don't do optimism. Well, I, well no, but you, you, you've done ten, uh, all right, tenderness. I'll give you a personal optimistic note. That'll do. It's, it's actually quite nice being old. Oh, good. That's good to know. It's quite nice being old. Not the body. The body part of being old isn't nice, but the emotional part of being old. I've, you know, I've got, I've, having been a querulous, very unreliable, miserable, bitter, sometimes envious, mean, uh, certainly a very bad husband for most of my life, Gosh. I've become, at my age, quite a nice guy. Are you uxorious? I am deeply uxorious. Deeply uxorious. And finally, what ambitions do you have left? I want to write Crime and Punishment. Oh, Jacobson, thank you so much. Real pleasure. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of Unfiltered with the novelist and journalist and indeed public intellectual Howard Jacobson. Um, I'll be honest with you, I thought we'd talk more about Trump and Brexit, but I just found him so fascinating that I let the conversation go wherever it goes, which is, I guess, one of the great things about doing Unfiltered. One of the other great things about doing Unfiltered, of course, is... um, that you can subscribe to it and hear 30-odd other interviews um, that stand comparison with that one. Do so wherever you downloaded this. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you enjoyed the show, if you enjoyed that interview, then please tell other people because they will enjoy it too. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.